Good morning. I want to begin before we get in the word this morning, uh, uh, just a personal note from Charlotte and I to you. We are very, very thankful that you, you pray for us. And uh, I'm humbled because I, I'm up here and you guys see me often, maybe more often than you like. But um, anyway, and so I share some of the things that are going on in our lives. Really, we all have needs. So I wanted to express to you from the bottom of our hearts, we really appreciate your prayers. We, 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 have, we feel the prayers. And so a couple of things that I've asked for prayer about, and I don't know if I filled you in on. In fact, one of them was last week we went down to see our son uh, Marcus in San Jose. And so if you, it, one, the other thing too that I don't know if I've followed up on, but I was asking for prayer for my left ear because I lost hearing it basically. And so had surgery on it and they fixed it. Is that awesome? So I can hear. Hello? <laughs> so that was pretty cool. I mean, now I know how Jesus healed those that were deaf. He just went in there and fixed the little bones in there. Um, <clears throat> secondly, our son Marcus, if you don't know, he, uh, he's, he's, a, he's our adopted, one of our four adopted children. And that's him in the middle there. There's me, Charlotte, him. And then Jenny is, is very beyond. She is Titus, who's in the front girlfriend. And then Mariah, we all drove down to San Jose last weekend. It was a 16-hour drive down, 15-hour drive back, straight through both ways. And it was, it was really a good trip. So I just wanted to fill you in on Marcus. If you don't know, he has been uh, battling with meth addiction for many years. Uh, he's been on the streets in both here, Kent, Washington area, and also down in San Jose most recently. And so he was high on meth. He was riding a Razor scooter, a Razor scooter without a helmet, and was hit by a U-Haul truck. And so they, uh, they didn't even know who he was. He didn't have any... Uh, ID on him, so they found him through the prison system because he had been, uh, he'd gone through that a little bit. They found Charlotte through the fingerprints, found her, and that's how we even knew about it. That was four and a half months ago. When, when he went to the hospital, they did not think he would, he, they thought he'd be a vegetable uh, for the rest of his life. And you have been praying, and I want to tell you, the Lord is answering your prayers. He is now eating, he is walking, he is talking, and uh, we, so when we saw him, we had great interaction with him, and just, he has a trach tube there, but they've since taken that out, so he's breathing on his own now, and it's a miracle. It is really a miracle to which, yes, we thank the Lord for that. So with that, our deepest prayer, our deepest desire is to see him want to have a relationship with the Lord. We believe he accepted Christ many years ago, but so we asked him about that, and what he said is that his you know, does he want to have a relationship with the Lord? And he said, well, that's kind of a gray area right now for him, is how he put it. And he said he wants to have a relationship with the Lord. He doesn't want to be going back to the world with the drugs and all that stuff. So if you would up, up the prayers for him, and I, it's not just him. How many of you would raise your hand and say, we got loved ones too, that we just want to see them come to Christ. We want to see them. And so uh, we're all in the, in the throes of a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rules of the darkness of the age. Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So, in fact, Paul says in Romans that we, we, we pray groaning, with groanings that cannot be uttered. But then he says the Holy Spirit is actually interceding for us according to the will of God. What a powerful thing. So sometimes... There's a groan that comes out of the deep hurt, desire we have to see our kids, to see our loved ones know Christ and not have to, not have to learn the hard way. And I learned a lot of things the hard way. We all have, our, have had, I just say, for my kids, Lord. And I don't know how that 
how that all works. In fact, uh, in October, November, we're going to do an eight-part series in the book of Job, Why Good People Suffer. And I think not when, excuse me, it's when good people suffer, not why they suffer, because the answer that, that uh, Job never gets is the why. What he gets is the who. There's a God in heaven. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So anyway, if you would just be praying for our son Marcus, that he would come, not only him, but then also our other son Terrence. So that's just from my heart to you. Now, the third thing I wanted to share with you before we get into the study this morning is on our building. I don't know if you uh, come often, but every week, every day, the Lord has blessed us with this building and he's using it. And we are very thankful for it. In fact, uh, in November, it will be our fifth year here. So the Lord has blessed us with this building. And as you know, because you have a house, many of you, it requires upkeep. And that's what happens on any building. So you get the building. We're thankful for the building. The Lord has blessed us with it. But we also want to steward it very well. So we budget conservatively as a church, uh, very conservative. We don't take an offering. We don't, uh, have never done a series on generosity uh, and you say, not that I'm opposed to that. I think that's fine. But what we never want to do is, particularly new people coming, that somehow they would come here and think that we want their wallets. And that's not why we're here. Can I hear an amen? What we're here is to, to edify the body of Christ, to be built up, to be equipped, to do the work of ministry. So money is talked about often. In fact, I was just talking to, to Garth Gill out there. He's going to be doing the financial piece again, uh, the, that course uh, on financial, um, just how God looks at our finances, and the Bible talks a lot about money. So uh, I'm meandering a little bit here, but I just want you to know that we are thankful to you who give to the church, who have blessed us, and taking care of the things that are going on. So this year we budgeted, my point here, I'll get to it at some point, <laughs> my point is that uh, last year we budgeted to do our roof. That was a very expensive project. This year, we budgeted to begin doing the re redoing our siding, and so uh, we hired someone to do that, and he started, and as with any remodel, as I was saying with your home, you realize, you know, you, you go to do a remodel. I've, I was in construction for many years. It'll probably cost you twice what you think and take you twice as long to do it, and that's what happens. Well, we got into our siding and found out there are some things, not structural, but some things going on there that need to be addressed, so the cost of the project now has gone up quite significantly. Secondly, this week, the fire department came, the Kent Fire Department, and they have and they've been here every year since we've been here. They inspect us, and it's a surprise visit. They come, and they say, and up to this year, we're in full compliance, and when we weren't, we got it that way. We'll always do that. We'll always be above board. We'll say, yes, whatever we need to do, we'll do it. Well, they came in this year, and they called us on a couple things being out of compliance, which is going to require some pretty significant uh, sprinkler system uh, addition, stuff like that. So all that to say is... We, if you feel led by the Lord to contribute, we believe in tithing, 10%. We believe that's just a, God's economy. But there are also offerings. And so this is going to be a one-time deal. I don't know if I've done this very often at all. But if you would like to help us with that, because really our goal in being conservative in our budgeting is also to get this building paid off so that the money we're putting toward a mortgage can go to ministry. Can I hear an amen on that? We want to take the M and make it another M. <laughs> From mortgage to ministry. That's M&M. &M. <laughs> anyway, so, so would you pray about that? And if you do, just designate it. You can go online. We have a place for the building fund if you just give there. Or if you're going to do a check or cash, just put it in an envelope or put it on the check just toward the building fund. That is what that will go to. And 
uh, I'm going to trust the Lord for all this, but I wanted to let you know as a family, this is the things that are going on in, in our house here. Okay, so would you give me an amen on that? Okay, so let's go to Acts chapter 26, continue our study in the making of a testimony. And so again, this is the next to the last to the last study. Next week, chapter 27, we're going to look at staying the course, and then chapter 28, the following week, on to be continued. So we're going to look at those two wrapping up this whole, which I've been loving. I love going through the Word, but just this study through the book of Acts, one chapter at a time. So for next week... Come having read Acts 27, you're going to get all about a little voyage on the waters of life that Paul the Apostle is taking on in getting into Rome. So this morning we're in chapter 26, but I want to again get a running start at it. 25 and 26 really go together. In 25, the first 12 verses, Paul is giving his defense before Festus. Then Festus, not knowing what to do, in chapter 25 in verse 13, beginning there, he consults with King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was a man who knew Judaism. We'll look at that also this morning again. So Acts 25, verses 13 through 22. Let's pick it up in chapter 25, verse 23. And then through the chapter 26, Paul now is giving his defense before King Agrippa. Okay? So in 25, 23, let me pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on your word. We know that we do not live by bread alone. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have blessed us, that we have food on our tables, our stomachs are full. We thank you for that. But, Lord, what we need is the food of our hearts, the food of the Spirit. We pray now that you, I pray you take the things I've prepared, break them fresh, feed us, Lord, we're hungry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Jesus, you said often, he who has ears, let him hear. We want to have ears to hear this morning. So, Holy Spirit, we're, we're wide open. Minister to us now truth. We pray also for anyone who does not know you, that you, Lord, this morning, would bring them to that place of choosing, confessing, repenting, and, and then, Lord, receiving you as their Lord and Savior. It'll so radically change them as you always do. You love them, Lord. We pray for them also this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 25, verse 23. So the next day when King Agrippa, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp. So this is not a formal trial. It's more like a political exhibition, if you will. So they come with great pomp and it entered the auditorium and the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, Caesarea, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. That's what they're saying. He needs to be executed. Verse 25, but when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing. This is, to me, it's a little comical. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, because he understood Judaism, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable, indeed, to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. So this is a little comical. I want to send him to Augustus, but now the whole idea here is that this could well cost him his governorship. Not only is it embarrassing, but he... 
Augustus goes, well, why is he here? There's no charges. So he's trying to figure this whole dilemma out. So Festus, hoping that King Agrippa can help him. Now, Paul now has been two years under these house arrests. So it hasn't been just a chapter it's in that sense, two years. Now look at 26, chapter, 26 verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you're expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul is, is saying, hey, I might talk a while. <laughs> I'm going to give it all to you. So listen, please, clearly. And he's also saying, I'm so thankful because you know, you understand, you know Jewish Jewish customs, you know the history, you know the controversies. So it's the perfect guy for Paul to be standing before to express the things that he's going to in his testimony. And Agrippa, I believe, was very interested to hear him. And so not only is Agrippa hearing him, but Paul saying, Lord, he's praying, Lord, I hope he hears you in the things I share with Agrippa, as we'll see at the end. So Paul's conversion testimonies are found three times in the book of Acts. Now, there are other defenses where Paul is standing before certain officials where he's giving his defenses. And, and those would be in chapter 23, 24, 25. But his actual conversion testimony is found three places. The first is Acts chapter 9, where Luke, the, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, the historian Luke, gives his, test, gives his written record of the testimony of Paul's conversion. In chapter 22 in Jerusalem, as Paul is about to be lynched by a very angry Jewish mob, he then gives, he's given audience to this tremendous uh, gathering, and there he shares his conversion story, his testimony. In chapter 26, this has been called the climactic testimony of Paul the Apostle before King Agrippa and others, where he's giving his conversion testimony. This is what happened. So what I'd like to do, and many of you who have been believers for any amount of time, there are different, many different templates for preparing a testimony. What is your testimony? And I think it's very wise to have gone through those, those, those steps of preparing Maybe a one-minute testimony, because you have one minute to share with someone your testimony. Or maybe you're going to be given five minutes, so you have a five-minute platform, or you have a ten. But to have actually thought through your testimony, and so this morning, as we go through this chapter, I want to talk about the testimony of Paul the Apostle as a template for our own personal testimonies. And there are three things that I want to look at. Who I, who I used to be without Jesus. Who I used to be without Jesus. Secondly, when I came to know Jesus, that's part two, when I came to know Jesus, and then the third part is why I cannot stop talking about Jesus. That's the third part. That's the testimony. That's the witness to others. And so it's all Jesus. If you want to do three parts, it's simply this, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Without Jesus, know Jesus, talk about Jesus. How's that for a little template this morning? So let's start in chapter 26 and verse 4. This is pre-conversion. Who I used to be without Jesus. Three things, if you're taking notes. My former background, my former beliefs, and my former behavior. That's what Paul gives us here. My background, a little bit. My beliefs, a little bit. And my behavior, a little bit. And Paul does that. 
He begins with a brief background of his life. Let me give it to you simply. He was a good Jewish boy. Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus. He was a good Jewish boy. Notice in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. That's my background. In Philippians, Paul puts it this way. Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, Paul was always defending his apostleship. So he said, if anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day. Good Jewish boy. Of the stock of Israel. Good Jewish boy. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A strong Jewish boy. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, a religious Jewish boy. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was a stellar. He had all the credentials you would ever want to have. He had them all up on his wall. All his degrees, all his diplomas, all of his trophies. That's who I was. Without Jesus. And people accomplish amazing things Without Jesus. That's what happens. And that may be a part of your background. Paul was a good Jewish boy. But Paul was a good Jewish boy with an attitude. That's what he was. It was his way or the highway. A very self-righteous, pious man. And so Paul then reflects on his beliefs before he knew Jesus. He said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. This promise, to this promise, are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul had a hope in God. Always did. That was his background and that was his beliefs. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He had a system of belief. Now, in a testimony, the need for hope is universal. The need for hope is universal. There are some things about which everyone has questions. None can ignore. Why? Because God has put eternity in our hearts, being created in his image. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. That he's written on our hearts, we're made in his image. So we have this eternal thing that is there that you cannot escape. What will happen when I die? What is my hope beyond the grave? So for the very rich and the very poor, for the highly educated and the uneducated, for the doper and the straight and narrower, for the atheist and the God-fearer, for the servant and the master, for the ruler and the ruled, there is this universal sense, what is going to happen when I die? What is this life all about? Where is it leading? You see, is there life beyond the grave? What hope do you have in that? The fear of death, universal. The uncertainty of the future is universal. The sense of guilt is universal. This innate sense that something's wrong. I don't know. I can't see. I'm not sure. There's an emptiness and a loneliness that's universal in earthly relationships. Even in laughter, Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart has sorrow. No doubt there are some 
some among us today who are sad of heart. I would suggest there's some here who are lonely to just be known. It's part of the human condition because of sin. And I don't know if it's a prophetic word from the Lord for you, but if that's you, let me say to you, we have a God who's a God of hope. He's a God of hope. And he stirs that hope in believing. What do you believe? What are your beliefs? What are they based on? Social improvement and material riches will not meet the life, the need that you have because you've been created in God's image to know him. It won't do it. Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You may accumulate all the things that this world can possibly give you, but there's still an emptiness, a loneliness. There's something missing. There's something wrong if you don't know God. Amen. What do you believe this morning? Jesus, what does it profit him if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't give anything in exchange for your soul, but Jesus came to give his life for your soul. What do you believe? You see, and this is Paul giving, he reflects on his beliefs before he knew Jesus, without Jesus. Here's what I believed. And there's this innate sense. You know something else? Another element of the unanimous human experience. Most of the problems that agonize people are due to the fact that their concept of God is greatly mistaken. Because man is incurably religious, as one philosopher said it. He must worship something. God created us to worship. History is the record of human beings created in the image of God, surmising countless erroneous views about who and or what God is. J.B. Phillips wrote a book that says it all. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be God. That's the truth. Do you believe that? You see, many have an anthropomorphic concept of God. They fashion him in their own image. That's the essence of idolatry. They create a very small and limited God because of that. He's an extension, but they have ears they can't hear, eyes they can't see. They have a mouth, but they can't even mutter. They're dead idols. They can't do anything for you. That's, the, that's any idolatry that takes place that replaces God with something else is useless to help you in answering the question of what hope do you have when you die? What do you believe? People have all kinds of problems with the Bible as though God could not, has not, and cannot. But you see, here's the deal. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the one doing the work. Is there anything too hard for God? Depends what God you're talking about. What God you're believing in. You see, God has revealed himself, though sin has veiled his lovely face. Sin has marred it. Sin has separated it. And had God chosen not to reveal himself, we would not and could not know him because of sin and what is done. Now, a fascinating thing that I think would be good for all of you at some point just to begin to think about. And that is the Trinity. 
that we worship the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's revealed to us in the scriptures, but we, humanly speaking, will never, ever get it. So I put a little acronym, GET. Let me tell you what the Trinity is. God, G, is three persons. E, each person is fully God. T, there is one God. That's the Trinity. Now, if you can figure that out, I want to talk to you after service today. (laughs) See, if your God is small enough to understand, he's not big enough to be God. And if God is not the triune God, where does love come in? Where does eternal love come from? You see, if it's a single person God, that God is going to love himself. And everything he's going to do is because he loves himself. So he's going to create things so he can rule them and demand these things from him. And that's all the other single person gods. But the God of the Bible is the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I go, I've been reading about this. Yeah, it's just, it's so out of this world, there's no way I'm going to be able to comprehend it. But let me tell you something. I begin to understand just a little, little bit about the love of God, our Father. He's a Father God. He creates life. He has children. The God of the Bible is not a single person God. Now, Allah, the Muslim God, is a single person God. Let me read to you something from a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Quote, in no sense is Allah a father from the Quran. He begets not. And in no sense does he have a son from the Quran, nor is he begotten. Allah is an utterly different sort of being to the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unquote. They cannot, would not, Muslim or others, they cannot and would not sing, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. They cannot sing, in my father's house, there's a place for me. Nor would they sing, Who the Son sets free is free indeed. See, our God is the eternal, triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who revealed himself through his Son that he might give to us what he gives his Son, and that's the love, and they have that together. In fact, I didn't really see this until recently. In John 13 through 17, Jesus' final, the chapters that he gives to us of his final hours with his disciples before he went to the, to the cross. Begins with, now, before the feast of the Passover, John 13, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, he loved his, he loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. To the end. And then you start going through 13, 14, 15, 16. It's a commentary on the triune God who we worship. And he closes that chapter. I'm going to read the verses at the end just as a little benediction. But he closed that chapter. I'm saying, Holy Father, I pray they may be with us. I don't have my Bible. I'll get it at the end. But if you look at 13 through 17, the end is chapter 17. He's praying that they may know you. They've been with me, and he ends with the love of God also. 
Chapters 13 through 17 are all about a father in communion with his son, speaking of the Holy Spirit and talking all about his love. And it just strikes me. We talk about, oh, God loves you, God loves you, and it can become almost like, let me say this, if I might, from my own heart to you. God is the father who loves you as deeply as he loves his only begotten son. And he demonstrated that to you and to me by sending his son into the world to reveal his love, die on a cross for you that we might experience his love, give to us his Holy Spirit, put his life within us that we might walk in his love and know his love and that nothing too hard for him because he loves us, he's gonna take care of us, he's gonna watch over us, we're gonna walk with him from this day forward and that's the testimony. It's not some belief in some this, that, and the other. It's a belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, John chapter one. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and nothing was made that was made. He is creator. That's the son and the father. Figure that one out. I can't. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, who is the bosom, who is the heart of God, he has declared him. That's our God. So look at verse 8. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? It's a great question. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? God can do anything and God can raise the dead. Paul, verse Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was, made, who was born of the son of David, according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God according to the resurrection. I don't know why I said that like that. The resurrection. <laughs> what? From the dead. Do you think his disciples believed he was going to raise from the dead? No. You guys on the road to Emmaus. Jesus pulls up alongside after his resurrection. So what, you know, what things? You look at that. What things? What things? What things? What things are you guys talking about? You're so bummed out. Well, haven't you heard? Are you a stranger in, in Israel? Well, really, he was the stranger in Israel. He was rejected by Israel. Are you a stranger? Well, tell me what things. Well, how we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped. Our hope was that he was the one that was going to lead us to victory over Rome and set up his kingdom, all that was going to happen. And that's not what happened. And they didn't believe it would happen, even though he told them they're going to crucify him, but I'm going to rise from the dead. Oh, yeah, right. I think he just went, Whoosh. why? Because they thought that's impossible. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Why should it be thought by you that Impossibly, God could raise the dead. Why is that? That's not difficult for God. Paul says, here's how I know who Jesus is. He rose from the dead. That's not too hard for God. Romans chapter 4. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Talking about those who believe the gospel were, were, were sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. He's our father of the faith, Abraham. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 4. The big daddy, Abraham. So it, might, so it, was, it was according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. This is Romans 14, 
4.16. Not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. God promised Abraham, I am going to give you the nations. You're going to bless them. And all those who come to Christ putting their faith in God's promise and God's ability to raise the dead. All those who come by faith will be saved. That's what he's saying. They're going to be Abraham's descendants, Jew and Gentile. That's what he's telling them. How did that happen for Abraham? He believed what God said. God who gives, this goes on to say, God who gives life to the dead and calls things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary, here's the word, who contrary to hope, Abraham, believed in hope so that he became the father of many nations. He just believed God. Believed the gospel, if you will, for us and the hope that's there. And not being weak in faith, Abraham, he did not consider his own body already dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Do you believe the promises? That's the God we're talking about. Do we believe the gospel? You see, I believe it. God saves me. That settles it. I'm not trying to figure out in those ways how and all that stuff. I just know that this is what God did for me. This is how my beliefs were changed. And therefore is accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone, Paul writing, that it was imputed to him, Abraham, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see, why should it be thought something that God, he can raise the dead. He raised his son so that we might know he's going to raise us too. Hebrews chapter 11, if you we continue another passage that just comes to mind. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up his son, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, in whom was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead if necessary. So Abraham's walking his son Isaac at probably 30 years old up the Mount Moriah. He's going to sacrifice him just like God told him to do. And as he brings him up there, he's saying, he already sees him dead for three days on the walk. Abraham, you see the picture. And in his mind, he's believing God, he's trusting God. He's saying, I know what God promised that through Isaac my seed will be called. Through Isaac, Messiah would come. I know that's God's promise to me. So though he's telling me to slay him, I know that if need be, God can raise him from the dead. See, that's our hope. That's all of our hope. That God promised it, he can do it, and he will do it. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Can I hear an amen? Amen. That's what he said. What do you believe in? You see, without Jesus, there is no hope. Without Jesus, it's no no wonder people have to question that. So Paul gives us there his background, his beliefs, and then he gives us his behavior, his bad behavior. This is part of his testimony. Indeed, verse 9, Acts 26, I myself thought I must do many things. 
contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and punished them often in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is what I used to do. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a helpful thing in clearing the conscience, not to say, well, I've sinned, but to say, this is what I did. Paul's saying, this is what I did. This is my former bad behavior before Jesus came on the scene. By all outward appearances, Saul of Tarsus was a very moral, religious man. Top of the class, highly esteemed, revered by many. He was not just talk, he was action. He lived out his convictions deeply. However, he had some very mistaken beliefs that led to bad behavior. He thought he was doing God's service by killing Christians. You see, the outward appearance can be so deceiving. You're no more a Christian by getting into church and sitting here than you are a car by going into a garage. Doesn't make you a Christian. There are very many very moral religious people whose hearts are deceived and whose beliefs and behavior are stuffy and self-righteous. Just enough religious morality can inoculate a person to the utter depravity of sin. In fact, many they don't like to use the word sin. You see, it dulls the senses to the damning seriousness of sin. It dulls the senses to our desperate need for a savior so I can balance the scales. You can't balance the scales. The wages of sin is death. How serious is, how serious does God take sin? You just have to look at the cross. If it doesn't matter how we live, if it doesn't matter what's going on in our hearts, then why did Jesus have to die? If I can just say, well, I'm going to balance things out and God's going to be okay with that, then why did Jesus have to die? Now, it's not a cross. It's a piece of jewelry hanging around your neck. It's the cross of Jesus who hung and died a hideous death that our sins might be forgiven by a holy, perfect, righteous God. That's the cross. That he might take away our sin by atoning for us through his son. There's no other means by which our sin can be taken care of except through the cross. The second thing, and all these next two will be briefer. First part of the testimony, who I used to be without Jesus. Secondly, when I came to know Jesus, what a glorious time that was. Glorious moment. And Paul, three things, was occupied. He was overwhelmed, but he was obedient. So Paul, it says there, verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed. So Paul's just living life, thinking everything's cool, everything's good. And we were too. We're just going along. I was going along, partying my life away. Some of you the same thing. We were just occupied with many things. But then there came this moment when I was overwhelmed by this sense, 
I must get right with God. So Paul said, I journeyed to Damascus, authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. At midday, O king, along the road I saw this light, brighter than the sun. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. His conversion. So I said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted. Now Luke in chapter, verse 9 says, Lord, Paul said, Lord, what shall I do? See, he was not only occupied, he was not only overwhelmed, he was obedient. And that's the difference maker. In our response, how do we know Jesus? We were obedient. And so, you know, many of us have never experienced such a dramatic outward experience that Saul had here. Most of us did not experience that. But let me say this. The inner personal life-changing experience is no less dramatic. No less dramatic. Coming face to face with the Lord Jesus in real time, in eternity, is just as absolutely dramatic for each and every one of us. The reality of your experience with Jesus needs no embellishments and it needs no comparisons. It stands complete in the glory of God. So we don't have to compare ours, and that is a tendency sometimes. Oh, I wish I had that testimony. No, you don't. It's not yours. Yours is yours uniquely. Yours is what brings glory to God. You don't have to embellish it or compare it. It's just as fantastic. There's a guy named Mike Warnke. Some of you are aware of him. A Christian evangelist and comedian in the 70s and 80s. In 1972, his best-selling book, Satan's Seller, launched him into stardom. And he had a lot of, making a lot of money, a lot of concerts, very well known. Until, in 1991, Cornerstone magazines investigated his supposed testimony and exposed his deceit, his fraud, and his immorality. And as it says in the Bible, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Our testimony is what overcomes the devil with the blood of Christ. It's my testimony. And when I try and be someone else and I try and add that, that's not going to work. Because that's not what Jesus happened for me. Just share right along with Paul what happened when you came to know Jesus. You yourself had an inner light that was from God by his mercy and grace. And it shined into your conscience and began to awaken you to your need to get right with God. And Jesus then himself spoke in that inner voice to you. And your name, however that sounded, you knew that you were the one there, as it were, alone with Jesus, realizing he's the one that I need to bring my life to and get right with God. That voice, if you will. And then that inner question that Jesus answered. And so he was obedient to, the, to that heavenly vision. Then the final one is why I can't stop talking about Jesus. That's the third part of the testimony. And this is where it now transitioned to you, that other person I'm, I'm sharing it with. Three things. 
I can't stop talking about Jesus. Why? Because he appeared to me. We looked at this in a former, former study. He died for me. That's number two. But secondly, but third, he loves you. And Agrippa now is the one that's hearing the testimony. And in Paul's heart, he's trying to tell him, he loves you. He died for you. He wants to appear to you. I'm here to give you my testimony, but you need your testimony. And so he says to Paul, verse 16, rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose. You see, when we come to Christ, all of a sudden, what life is all about takes on meaning, purpose. So I've appeared to you to make you. I will deliver you to send you. This is why I can't stop talking about Jesus. He appeared to me, he died for me, and he loves you. That's the culmination of the climactic testimony is that now others might know Christ. To open their eyes, verse 18, in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's saying, Paul, this is what I'm sending you now as my witness the witness of me. So Saul's saying, Paul, Paul's now, God called me by name. He convicted me. He corrected me. He saved me in, in, from transgression. He straightened me out in my direction. He opened my eyes. He turned me to the light. He delivered me from sin. You see, Paul was a good Jewish boy. But Paul was a good Jewish boy with an attitude until he met Jesus. How Jesus can take care of faulty attitudes. We didn't hear an amen on that. That's what happened for, for Saul of Tarsus became Paul. And so he writes in Philippians. But what things were gained to me that I've counted lost for the excellence of Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. He's saying all his trophies, all his diplomas, all stuff didn't mean anything if he didn't know Christ. It's not that they don't mean anything because God uses all those things as he did with Saul of Tarsus. He takes our background, he takes those things, and he uses them for his glory. But as far as them having them, they're useless, they're meaningless if we don't know Christ. And Paul the Apostle is writing here to the Philippians saying, hey, I had all those things, but as far as I'm concerned, if I don't know Christ, it's all rubbish. It means nothing. And so he's driving here in Agrippa for a decision. Let's pick it up there. Jesus loves you. Verse 24. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said to the loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You're crazy, Paul. But he said, I'm not mad. And I know King Agrippa didn't think he was crazy. Festus didn't think he was crazy. He sees here someone that's lit on fire with something that's happened to him and changed him so radically. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. But speak the words of truth and reason, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows that these things, knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, Agrippa. Since this thing was not done in the corner, Jesus Christ, the resurrection, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? <laughs> I know you do believe. He's driving for a decision. And Paul said, and he said, then King Agrippa said, I, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. May I say to you, we, we might reach them many times. Almost, almost. Don't give up. You almost, see, gained a little ground. Whether you're saved or not, I have no idea. But Paul's gained a little ground. Why I can't stop talking about Jesus. You almost, almost. Now, it's also an extreme, extremely sobering response to the gospel. 
You keep rejecting it pretty soon. You will. So we can't but, but close as we do each service, but particularly with this message. If you would bow your heads and pray, believers in the room. Because I want to, if you would hear this morning, you don't know Christ. I want to drive a little bit your decision. As you've heard, there's no answer to your sin except through the cross of Jesus Christ where God put on, you, on him all your sin that you couldn't pay the price. And so in Jesus hanging on that cross, that was for you. If you don't know him yet, there's no other answer. All the religions in the world do not have the answer. All the riches of the world do not have the answer. All the success of the world does not have the answer to this one question. What is your hope when you die? What's going to happen to you, that last breath that you take? And because of Jesus Christ dying, but not just dying, he rose again the third day from the dead. He was demonstrated to be the son of God. God offers to you this morning forgiveness of your sin, a whole new beginning in Christ Jesus, a future and a hope. He offers to you a door into experiencing in a very real, personal way the great, great love of your heavenly Father. So three things I'm going to ask you as we're praying, because we know it's a battle. I ask you to raise up your hand to say, I, want, I need to get right with you. I need to say yes to Jesus today. I'm not right with God. I know that. Raise your hand up, and then we ask you to stand up, because in standing, that's your obedience. And when you stand, you're making a public confession of something you've been battling with inwardly, privately. And when you make that public confession, may I say to you, what will happen is all the excuses, all the fears, all those reasons, all the things that you've been battling with, Jesus is going to wash them away, and you're going to stand a, who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm going to ask you not only to raise up your hand, stand up, but then to walk up to one of the tables. There's people there that will pray for you this morning. So as we're praying, brothers and sisters, just for another moment, if that's you today, it's an urgent message. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And I'm not just saying that to be sensational. That's the truth. That's the truth. So if that's you, just raise up your hand. I want to make sure I see that. I want to say yes to Jesus today, right in this room this September morning, 20, 2018, I want to say yes, I want to get right with God. And just hold it up so I don't miss that. We don't want to miss any opportunity here to be witnessing what God has done in your heart today. Would you stand now as we sing this last song together and then I'll come and close with a verse.